Welcome to the Darkness Dwells podcast, episode 61. I am your host, Jason White, and this week, this week, Michael couldn't join us because he's, uh, he's experiencing some technical difficulties on his own end, so uh, he sends his apologies and he will be back, so long as I don't fire him. <laughs> Just joking, of course. Okay, so how about instead of, it's considering he's not here, I'm not going to like jibber-jabber <laughs> by myself, so how about we get into our sponsors? Uh, we are very proud to be sponsored by Crystal Lake Publishing. Go to uh, www.crystallakepub.com and uh, check out this awesome little <laughs> uh, publishing house. They started in 2012, and since then they have gone on to publish uh, crazy, crazy talent. Uh, the talents of Mercedes M. Yardley, Damien Angelica Walters, Kevin Lucia, um, excuse me, <laughs> uh, Clive Barker, and uh, so many more. I mean, God, uh, when they started out, it was basically just uh, short stories and uh, and novellas. But they have recently moved on to uh, producing or publishing uh, novels as well. So definitely check them out. Uh, they are they are going places, and everything I've read by them is utterly fantastic, and I highly recommend you check out the uh, their latest anthology, Gutted, uh, Beautiful Horror Stories. Uh, we've been uh, interviewing a lot of their authors lately, like Mercedes M. Yardley, um, and uh, the big one, Ramsey Campbell. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Uh, so definitely check that out, and uh, we're also proud to be sponsored by Audible.com. Uh, Audible.com is a uh, it's an online audiobook store. So go to www.audibletrial.com/darknessdwells and sign up for a one month long trial membership. Now, this trial membership will get you a free audiobook of your choice. And as I said, it is of your choice. There's over 180,000 books to select from, and that's a lot of freaking... <laughs> that's a lot of books. Uh, but I'm going to suggest Experimental Film by Gemma Files. Now, Gemma Files was a guest on, on the show on episode 55, I believe, and when we first started, when when we talked, when I talked to her uh, at the beginning of that interview, I congratulated her for being nominated for a Shirley Jackson Award. Well, within the past week of this recording, she won that uh, Shirley Jackson Award for for experimental film, the novel I just recommended. So definitely go check that out. And uh, that that is it for our sponsors. Uh, so this week, uh, I have I have had the pleasure to talk to with uh, Damien Angelica Walters. We sat down for about a half hour or so, and uh, we talked about her story in Gutted and her novel Paper Tigers. Um, also, uh, Keith Shago comes along, and he reviews Psychosanitarium by Chet Williamson. And I decided. Uh, whether for good or for bad, to watch the Stephen King adapted 
uh, uh, movie, Cell, from uh, the book. It's adapted from the book of the same title. And uh, so I give that a review. So stick around for that. Uh, We are the Darkness Dwells podcast, and we will be right back with some news. That's a nice song. That song you're listening to is, uh, uh, it's called Like 100,000 Sunsets, and it's by this band I haven't heard of until recently. They're called Weird Owl. (laughs) That's a pretty cool name, don't you think? I think, I think it's pretty cool. Um, alright, so this week, uh, you know, there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about. In re- in regards to movie horror news, and the first thing is uh, is an interesting little piece. Uh, as you know, they're remaking the It, uh, Stephen King's It, and uh, as far as I know, that's moving along pretty good, and uh, I can't wait uh, to see it. But uh, <laughs> uh, recently, I learned that. Uh, the uh, the original adaptation for it, starring Tim Curry, could have been very different. Uh, it was uh, at iHorror.com recently, and Michael Carpenter wrote an article about... Um, uh, this, the title is, It, 1990, was almost directed by George A. Romero, and it would have been a 10-hour-long uh, miniseries. And you're like, what, what? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been awesome. What the hell, man? Apparently, uh, uh, George Romero uh, stepped away from the project because he didn't like how much how much of the fat, I guess, they trimmed from the novel in order to make it into that 10-hour-long series. And uh, so he walked away and, uh, and didn't look back. It's too bad, though, because that would have been seriously awesome. Um... You know the uh, the adaptation that we do have the TV miniseries is you know it's not bad especially the first the first half with the kids I think that's uh, the best part um, the second half with the adults not so good but it's still pretty decent um, but I really really would have loved to have seen what Romero did with it but you know as uh, many things with movies in movie land in Hollywood um, we'll never know. <laughs> Sounds depressing, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, also, I wanted to bring up, uh, I'm sure Michael and I, we're probably going to talk about this extensively in the future, but uh, Netflix released this weekend uh, a new series called Stranger Things. It stars Winona Ryder, among many other talented actors. And let me tell you, man, the, the cast in this uh they all do a wonderful job. There's not one weak link, I don't think. 
Uh, I'm on episode five at the time of this recording, and uh, that means in in like two days I watched five episodes. So I'm on episode six. That's unheard of for me. I don't generally watch that many television episodes back to back unless uh, unless it's good. One thing I really like about this series is it's throwback to the 1980s, and that's becoming a very common thing. Throwing back to the 80s, it, 1980 horror movies is almost becoming a genre unto itself, which is really kind of strange. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that could ever be a genre, you know, 80 style genre horror or or what, but this movie has a lot of influence and it has Dean Koontz, it has Stephen King, it has uh Steven Spielberg. It it it's a mishmash of so many things from way back uh <laughs> during that golden time of horror movies and horror literature. So if you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it, especially if you like the throwbacks to the 1980s. And this, even though it's 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 very uh, naked in its throwback to the 80s, it it doesn't uh, it never truly gets old. It, it's just a part of what it is, and uh, and you can definitely, uh, even though it takes place in the 80s, it's it's perfectly good for modern audiences as well. So definitely give that a, a check out. And like I said, Michael and I, I'm sure we're bound to talk about it in the future. So stick around for that. And uh, what else did I have here? Oh, yes. Uh, Alien, the new Alien movie, Alien Covenant, is uh, apparently being described as dark and humorless, which uh, which I think is good. I only brought this up because of one reason. Uh, well, if you think about it, Alien Part 4 was a bit of a comedy, and uh, it doesn't necessarily belong in the series at all. <laughs> it it really comes out of left field, and uh, it's confusing for that reason alone. Um, so the, the idea I'm trying to get across here is that Alien movies, um, they should be bleak, dark, and humorless. And so I'm excited to see what happens with this, as as with everything. But, you know, Ridley Scott, he's sticking around to do it. So uh, maybe maybe this will be better than the last one, as we all know how that one went. And that, of course, being uh, Prometheus. And... Uh, you know, my thoughts on Prometheus, just quickly here, <laughs> it's a beautiful film to watch, but there's so many plot holes. I don't know how they... There, It must have been a mess behind behind the curtain, because uh, Ridley Scott is much better than that. So uh, hopefully, hopefully this uh, new one, Alien Covenant, will uh, kick some serious ass and make up for it. <laughs> Alright, that's all I have for the news. Um, just wanted to bring those to your attention. And uh, so we're going to take another quick break here, and when we return, I will be joined by Damien Angelica Walters, where we discuss some gutted, <laughs> beautiful horror stories, and we also, uh, we also talk about paper tigers. Mm. 
With unmatched success since 2012, Crystal Lake Publishing has quickly become one of the world's leading indie publishers of horror and thriller books with a mystery and suspense edge. With stories, interviews, and essays by the likes of Wes Craven, Neil Gaiman, Jack Ketchum, Ramsey Campbell, Kevin Lucia, Jasper Bark, Mercedes M. Yardley, Mark Allen Gunnels, and Clive Barker, you'll want to dive right in. Crystal Lake Publishing www.crystallakepub.com Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Downplace is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts, describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling, and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Um, well, Hammer means how to get a nail into a block of wood. This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes, and other information about these classic films. 1951 Downplace can be found in iTunes or their website, www.1951downplace.com. Should I have said Hammer Pants? 1951 Downplace, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Welcome back. As promised, we have another fantastic guest this week. Uh, Damien Angelica Walters is the author of Paper Tigers and Sing Me Your Scars, a collection of short stories. Uh, her short fiction has been nominated twice for a Bram Stoker Award, and uh, she's also been reprinted in, in Year's Best uh, Fantasy and, and Horror anthologies. She's also been published in uh, such magazines as Cemetery Dance Online, Nightmare Magazine, Black Static, and Apex Magazine. Welcome to the show, Damien. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Um, one thing I've noticed is that you've been on a lot of podcasts, and we were just talking about that, actually. <laughs> and <laughs> some of them were really big and popular, so I, I truly appreciate your taking the time to come on with us. Now, uh, are you a frequent listener of podcasts yourself? From time to time. I go on, I go on spurts. Yeah. I will listen to a bunch, you know, for a, a couple days in a row, and I'll catch up, and then I'll realize... Oh crap! You know I haven't listened to to the show in you know, a little <laughs> while, and then, while I, yeah. and then I catch up. Yeah, yeah. It, it depends on my schedule, honestly. Yeah, um, you know. Yeah, I'm. Well, I'm. I'm not. I've been like an, a podcast addict for years now, and uh, but I always find myself getting behind on episodes on on some of my favorites. Um, I think there are just there's so many there's so many good ones, and it's 
sometimes it's hard to work listening to all of them in to the schedule. Yeah, that's that's true. And uh, th- it's just so easy to start one of these up now. All you really need is a couple of dollars and a microphone <laughs> <laughs> and the balls. <laughs> that's one thing I had to develop was uh, the uh, the courage to uh, to do this. <laughs> but, you know, we've been doing it, so that's good. Um, one thing I like to do, as I was explaining before, is, is to get to know the author a little bit. So uh, can you tell us where you're from? I am from Maryland. Right now I live in Edgewater, which is um, about 300 yards away from the South River. It's near Annapolis. I grew up um, in Baltimore in a suburb of the city, um, the suburb just outside the city of Baltimore County. So, yeah, I've been in this state all my life. Wow. Um, did you read a lot when you were a kid growing up? Yes, always, always, <laughs> always. From I mean, from the time that I, that as far back as I can remember, my father would take me to the library every Friday night after work when he got home. Oh, cool. And I would leave with a stack of books, and by Sunday night, I'd be done. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'd re- you know, I'd have to reread all of them. I, uh, While I waited for the next Friday to roll around. Yeah, I always enjoyed this question because uh, um, because the answer is almost always the same, but it varies with uh, uh, writer to writer. But I like, but there's always a, a library involved, and uh, you know, getting books or getting that adult uh, membership card, and uh, <laughs> and devouring books as as children. And I, I don't know why that pleases me so much, but I just love hearing that story. Um, but I find it fantastic that there's always a library involved. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I mean, uh, I think that most people of a certain age, I suppose, it's it for kids, when you take your kids to the library, it makes sense because their tastes are developing yeah. and changing. And I, mean, I used to buy books for my kids, but when they were small, but we'd go through them so quickly. And yeah. granted, you know, we would have some that we would reread a lot, but I don't know. It just seems like a natural, a natural thing. You take yeah. your kids to the library to foster a love of reading, and it. it I don't know. It and then they do the that, same. Yeah. Yes, they do the same with their kids. And what's funny is, I really don't go to the library now. Yeah, now I buy <laughs> <Now> them. <you> <laughs> Now I have a library in my house. Yeah, me too. (laughs) And I have an e-reader, and there's like thousands of books on there that I've bought and haven't read half of. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, was there any one writer who made you want to become a writer yourself? Or was it like a group, like a a whole slew of writers that you were reading as a kid? You know, I remember I would read, gosh, probably when I was eight, I had this series of books by... Ruth Chu, and they were all about witches. Now, they they were kid-lit, so they, this wasn't graphic or anything, and then I remember reading Lois Duncan, and then when I was 11, uh, my mother's friend gave me a paperback copy of The Shining. Mm-hmm. Now, by that time, I was reading um, more mature books, but nothing of that caliber. <laughs> yeah. So I read The Shining, and it scared the shit out of me, and I loved it. And I never gave her back the paperback, which she said was fine. And from that point on, my my taste gravitated to um, more more of the the 
horror, science fiction, and fantasy for, you know, adult readers, as opposed to what I was reading before that, which was geared more toward a younger audience. Yeah. Um, uh, when did you, uh, have you always written, or is it something that one day you just decided, you know what, I'm going to take up the pen? <laughs> no, well, when I was, I don't know, second grade or third grade, I wrote books, you know, they were illustrated, and, and I tried to sell them to the kids in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. um, forgetting that, you know, kids in the neighborhood don't have any money. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think any of them survived my childhood. And then I went through um, the, the typical teenage girl period where I was writing angsty poetry, and then later on I would write a lot of vignettes. I didn't write anything really with a proper beginning, middle, and end until much later. I think it was just a lot of learning how to write, learning the actual act of writing, and then later learning how to craft a story. Yeah. Um, Well, you are very well known as a a short story writer. Um, So I... A lot of the guests that I've had on the show in the past are also uh, prolific and well-known short story writers. So I always enjoy asking this question. uh, Do you have a a preference between short or long fiction? Um, When I'm writing short fiction, I love writing short fiction. When I am writing a novel, I love writing a novel. They're two totally different animals, honestly. Um, there There is an immersion when writing a novel that you don't typically get with with a short story. I mean, it's not to say that you're not immersed in a short story when you're writing it, but it takes a great deal less, less out of you. Um, with a novel, you're living and breathing characters for weeks on end, months on end, and then you know, with the revision process, you're going back into that world and, and there's when I finish a novel, typically the first draft, I always have this sense of loss. Like, okay, I'm I'm empty. Now, now what? Now, I've spent all this time with these characters, and they were so real to me. And now it's done. That <laughs> I, I become that John Travolta meme where I just sort of stand and look around like... Uh, what do I do now? <laughs> where am I going now? Do, do you find yourself uh, exhausted, in a sense, after finishing writing a novel? Not a little bit, a little bit of like the word well is is empty mm-hmm. and, and just done. And there will be that it takes a little bit of time then to get back into writing short fiction. And every couple of months, regardless of what I'm writing, I sort of hit a creative. Um, I hate to say block because it's not a block. It's more of a complete just creative exhaustion. There yeah. is. There are no words left. There is. There are no stories. Um, pushing to to break free. My brain is saying, "Okay, you need to read for a few weeks, yeah, just know, like- for a week or two, and and just immerse yourself in someone else's words, someone else's characters." And then every time it happens, I get frustrated, which makes it worse. And then I stare at the blank page and I write a paragraph, and I'm like, "Okay, where is this paragraph going? I have no idea." Mm-hmm. And then I reach that point where I'm like, oh, I've been here before. 
I've been here before many times, and I will be here again. And then I basically I let it go. I let go of the frustration, and sure enough, within a few days, something will pop in my head and demand to be written. Yeah. Uh, the reason why I asked that is because when you were talking about uh, 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 finishing your or what you preferred writing, um, after writing a novel, you said you felt kind of empty and that struck a chord with me because uh i i tend to go through the same thing with my own writing uh if when i finish writing a novel at the end uh you, you do sort of feel like that well is empty and you just feel kind of like oh i just need i just need a break until the ideas start flowing again yes and some of it is that it's a separation i mean how do you with you spend a great deal of time with characters they yeah. are your focus. They are in your head. You are living their life. You are, you know, breathing their air, telling their story. So when you're done, it's, it's, there's this, this, it's kind of like when you finish a great book. When you finish reading a great book and you put it down and you can't, you can't read anything else yet. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because you're, they're still, you're in that world. You're in those characters' heads and, yeah, need a little bit of time. I totally get that. I I love that too. Like, there's sort of like a love hate relationship with that, because you know you just absolutely love being uh, immersed in in a, a like a really good novel. But when it comes to the end, you kind of dread the end coming. And when it comes, you're still in that world, and you're just like, oh. <laughs> yep. And you know, but there's also that I love to reread. Um, I read very quickly, uh -huh. so I find that a lot of times I will like a book more the second time I read it yeah. because I'll pick up on because knowing the end you pick up on a lot more because you're not necessarily trying to figure out all the bits and pieces. It's like um, I don't know putting on a I hate, <laughs> I hate to equate book with shoes, but putting on a pair of shoes that that are broken in and so. You don't have to. You don't really have to think about it. You just have to slip in. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I like rereading too, because then you can just see where all the blocks are and uh, how it's, uh, you know, moving towards the end. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we'll 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 move on to your your novel in a minute. But first, I want to talk about your short story writing a bit. Your collection. Sing Me Your Scars, which I think is a fantastic title. <laughs> Thank you. It was released uh, by Apex Publications last year in 2015. Was it difficult choosing the stories to go into it? <laughs> yes. I have. Um, I had a, developed a huge spreadsheet, and uh, per the terms of my contract, I had to have a certain percentage of new fiction versus um, reprints. So I, you know had my spreadsheet and, and I broke down stories by genre, by um, tense, by, you know, main character, by themes. And it, it, it took a bit of doing. Um, if I were putting together the same collection right now, I'd probably do it a little bit differently. But I think that's that's with anything. Whenever I have a great deal of trouble reading stories when of my own when they're published because I see things that I would change and so I'm I'm never a hundred percent happy 
yeah. with my work ever. I just have to reach a point where I'm 99% happy with it. Yeah, that's actually a good thing, though. Um, it's frustrating being inside the box with that, but it's good because you keep pushing yourself to do better. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I, you know, being completely content in your own work is, is uh, probably a dangerous thing. Um, I also wanted to ask you about your contribution to Gutted Beautiful Horror Stories uh, that was published recently by Crystal Lake Publishing. Your story, uh, On the Other Side of the Door, Everything Changes, uh, really struck a chord with me. It's a very powerful and moving story. Uh, how did you come to work with Crystal Lake Publishing? Well, uh, thank you for the kind words. Um, let me see. Uh, they solicited the story from me. I, if I'm not mistaken, I would have to go through my emails, but I'm fairly certain that they sent me an email saying, "Hey, we're putting this together. Would you like to, con- you know, would you, would you like to send us a story?" And I saw the the title of the anthology and what they were going for, and said, "Absolutely, yes." Yeah, is that is that how it was brought up? Like, uh, this is what uh, write a beautiful horror story, something that's like a good punch in the gut. Uh, is is that how they? Because this uh, anthology, it's fantastic. Um, I you I know think, I'm I'm floored with every story that are that I've read in it. I think the what they sent me was very close to like the back cover copy. Um, how they described how they described it to me mm-hmm. was, and and I looked at that and. And I, I believe on on their end, there was some familiarity with my work. Mm-hmm. You know, definitely, they weren't just reaching out and saying, "Hey, want to write a story?" Yeah, <laughs> I think they know that I tend to, I love to write emotionally resonant stories. Yes. I, am, I had a reviewer once say that I like to make people cry, and I will not deny that. I, if I can, if I can write something in five thousand words and leave, <clears throat> excuse me, leave a reader with a lump in their throat, no. Oh. I'm very happy. <laughs> Your story uh, left me with saying, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the reason for that is because the subject matter is kind of close um, to my own life. Uh, one thing I really loved about it was uh, the subject of bullying and, uh, and teen suicide. A lot of people categorize uh, the problems such as what the teenager or the teenage protagonist goes through in your story as being overly dramatic. Uh, But the problem with that is uh, one thing people don't realize is when you're a teenager, when something like what happens to the protagonist in the story happens, it, it, it's a, it's a life ruiner. It's, it's everything important to that child being destroyed and I don't think people can get beyond that because they've become adults. They've realized that there's life beyond high school and whatnot. But this can very well be a, a huge mistake. Right. Well, when you're 13, it's easy for an adult to say you're you're being overly dramatic. You know, don't let it bother you. But it's hard to remember that when you were 13, that is your world. That yeah. is your whole world. It's your so, universe. It's everything. Yes. Yeah. So you can't just let it go and and you know it's not you're not being overly dramatic that is that is what you know that is your your world yeah it's it's the equivalent today of having uh you built you, you built your life you have a house you have a family 
and uh, having your house suddenly burned down and everything's gone. Yes. It's, it is. It's exactly like that. And uh, one thing I liked, really liked about the story was the speech at the end. I don't want to give it too much away, but it was like the perfect thing said that you wish you could hear from someone you love when you're going through a time of crises, but perhaps it was said a little too late. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the, the last things that I wrote in the story. It was not in, if I'm not mistaken, it was not in the first draft. Um, it That story took a little bit of doing because I was also playing with a uh, non-linear time frame, even though it seems as though it's linear mm-hmm. um, that towards the end it becomes clear that I, I altered the altered the time a little to add a bit of a gut punch gut punch so yeah. to speak you know, <laughs> there, that um, I'm sorry fighting a sneeze <laughs> oh, that's okay. um, that I wanted uh, and I realized that it was if if a reader didn't it's a very slight, I think, indication as to the the structure, the the timeline of the story. So if someone doesn't, if they miss it, it I don't think that it necessarily would cause a huge problem. But I think when they realize that the speech at the end... <laughs> Is definitely too late. Yeah. That, yes, that it, especially if you're a parent. Yeah. That and, it, and that whole thing, just the idea of it, is completely heartbreaking, and that's why I uttered the word Jesus after I read <laughs> it because it, it it sent like a cold chill down my spine. I oh, uh, but yeah, uh, I loved the story and. Uh, and congratulations on uh, on being involved in that project. Thank you. Um, so let's talk a, a little bit about Paper Tigers. Um, speaking of houses burning down, <laughs> <laughs> can you tell us uh, uh, what that what this uh, novel is about? It is about a woman who was who was heavily disfigured. Uh, she's she's very young, in her early twenties, heavily disfigured in a fire, and she walks at night through her neighborhood and she comes across a little um, junk shop and there's a photo album in the window and she collects photo albums mm-hmm. so she goes into she she braves the shop and she goes in and this is at 3 o'clock in the morning so already a little weird because how many shops are open at 3 in the morning <laughs> but she goes in and she buys the photo album and the photo album is haunted, so to speak. Okay. <laughs> or or a a portal to a haunting. Um, she ends up inside the photo album. And when she comes back out, her scars are gone. Mm-hmm. Temporarily. And so she keeps going back in. And, you know, she keeps going back in. And when she comes out, even though the effect is temporary, there are changes in her scars. Mm-hmm. So she keeps going in because she thinks that if, if she... And things inside the album keep getting darker and darker, but that that chance to be whole again is so strong that 
because she is she is emotionally devastated. Yeah. Um, by her disfigurement, she is you know she locks herself away in the house. She has no mirrors in her house. Um, you know, she's just she's broken. Yeah. I mean, there's no other way to to put it, and so she is willing to take the risk. And it, it, well, not going to give anything else away. It just, um, it doesn't necessarily go so well. Yeah. <laughs> um, did, uh, did writing this take a, a lot of uh, research? A little bit here and there, but not a tremendous amount. I mean, I, I am of the, of the mindset that I will do some research enough to ground it in reality but if there are any mistakes they are solely on me yeah um i was talking with another writer about a year year and a half ago alan Riker, who wrote uh dream of the serpent it has a similar protagonist who's been horribly scarred by a fire and uh one thing that we talked about was uh how he came to write the book and he he wrote it because well not just for this sole reason but one of the reasons was that he felt that uh, if such a thing were to happen to him, this is how he would react, which is uh, not a very positive uh, thing, and it's a very grim story. So is is it fair to say that you approached paper, writing Paper Tigers with a similar idea? Um, no. No, I... In the first draft of the novel, the character was a little older, and I realized that it wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Because I think once you reach... a as you get a little older, you change. You're not so caught up in the face you see in the mirror. Yeah. But in your early 20s, you were still very much judged. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and to some extent, people are always, but I believe it's much harder for someone in their early 20s yeah. to to cope with such a changed reality because they're still beginning their life. They're, you know, when it happened, she was in college. She was engaged. I think when you are, you know, at a decade to that, which she was about a decade older in the first draft, you wouldn't, you would still be devastated, but I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't lock myself in the house and avoid people any more than I already do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's hard to say because not, I'm not living in that moment in that circumstance, but I, I can't see myself hiding away because of that. Yeah. But I could see someone who was 20. Yeah. And so I just had to put myself in her head and, and some of it was okay you tell me how broken you are. And then in the second draft, I realized she was much younger and much more broken than mm-hmm. than I had thought. And it was the only way that the story would work. Because if she wasn't that broken, she wouldn't be so so desperately looking to be whole again. She would realize that, okay, my reality has changed, but I am still whole. I am still a person i do still have worth yeah and uh it's interesting 
making a character or watching a character I should say um, come through uh, see where they end up on the other side whether they end up on the other side at all <laughs> but it, it's interesting watching how they uh, react to to a struggle that's I mean I think in terms of uh, our first world nation that could be construed as one of the worst things that could happen to somebody is uh having a, a fire that destroys not only their belongings but their life and and their identity which is how they look like mm-hmm. and uh so that i i have a fear of fire <laughs> <In case you> i <laughs> honestly i have a i am dreadfully afraid of fire yeah. it, it's just horrific so yes i got to play with my own fear of of that but you know, I, I enjoyed, while being in her head was not always comfortable, I enjoyed seeing her grow. Yeah. I enjoyed, you know, I, I mean, certainly things do not always go so well, but, but she has a definite, she has a definite, definite growth process. Yes. And uh, that's, that's one thing I find uh, fascinating, uh, is watching that as a reader. Uh, so, uh, tell me, um, uh, what are you working on right now? Is there anything coming out soon that you can, uh, tell us about? Let's see. As far as short fiction, um, I have stories forthcoming in, uh, The Madness of Dr. Caligari, an anthology that is edited by Joe Pulver. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, another one in Darker Companions, celebrating 50 years of Ramsey Campbell. Ooh, which is awesome. another anthology edited by Joe Pulver. Um, I have a story coming out in Word Horde's Eternal Frankenstein later this year, wow. which is called Sugar and Spice and Everything Nice. Um, I have a story coming out in Suspended in Dusk 2. Uh, Sing Me Your Scars, the title story of my collection, is being reprinted in the year's best dark fantasy and horror 2016. I have a few other short stories, which I, I keep a... Uh, my bibliography up to date on my website and then right now I am in the middle of um, the query trenches for my a novel that I finished earlier this year cool um, which is not a horror novel oh. is, it is a more of a psychological suspense cool um, can you uh, can you give us a, a little bit of a leak of what it might be about <laughs> It is about a child psychologist who receives a heart necklace in the mail, and the last time she saw it was on the body of her best friend, and she killed her. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes from there, and hopefully it's you know, it's very character-driven. Um, I tend to be a very character-driven yeah. author as opposed to plot-driven. Uh, the novel switches back and forth between the summer of 1991 when everything happened and now and the character is you know close to 40 and basically a cat and mouse cat and mouse game of who knows and what are they trying to do and then I flip back 25 years and show you how the friend how everything fell apart so to speak yeah although it does not (laughs) There is no bullying. It is. It is. I, that was certainly when I first got had the concept of it of, of the novel. I was like, "Well, that would be that would be a little too, you know, 
to expected. Yeah. So there is no, there is no bullying. Yeah, cool. One, uh, I, I, I tend to gravitate towards writers uh, like yourself with the whole character-driven uh, stories because that's that's the one thing I I enjoy reading the most. And uh, uh, if anyone were to ask me uh, what writers I'm excited about, uh, like newer writers, uh, you would definitely uh, be in in the list. And well, thank you. Uh, so I thank you for coming on the show. Uh, we're about out of time, so uh, uh, can you tell us where readers can find you online? Okay, they can find me, let's see, if they just want to look at my bibliography or have links to interviews, it's DamianAngelicaWalters.com. I'm on Twitter as uh, Damian A. Walters, and, or they can find me on Facebook. That's pretty much where I am online. I tend to, sometimes I go quiet on social media, usually when I'm busy. Yeah. Um, I'm not one of those dramatic, you know, I don't post something that says, oh, everything is too much. I'm stepping away from social media. Yeah. <laughs> you see those you all know. the time. And sometimes they're genuine. I mean, there. I know some people who have stepped away for very good, very valid reasons. But, yeah. Well, um, you know, sometimes you want to because the world... I was just thinking about this actually before talking to you is that, uh, you know, we're living in, in pretty dark times, but I was thinking, you know, we've always lived in dark times. The, the difference between today and say 10 or 20 years ago is that we have this little thing called the internet, which has shrunk the entire planet into this one global universe. So when something tragic and horrible happens, instead of, uh, waiting a day to hear about it and maybe even completely missing it uh you hear about it like almost immediately on on social networks like facebook and whatnot so uh, yes and then it's constant yeah and and then then, and then people start fighting about it (laughs) yes whereas you know i'll see something and i will typically talk to family members about things like that where you know i think there are a lot of people who want to have the conversations on facebook um I typically don't. And of course, lately with the tons and tons of political posts, I, I just, um, yeah. yeah, I've been a little, I've been a little scarce on social media lately just because it's too much. Yeah, it is. Uh, I totally agree with you. I'm not going to argue politics with, you know, online. What, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no point because uh, if you're trying to convince something, of your side, it's not going to work, and it's the same thing with them trying to convince you. So uh, there, there's almost no point in arguing. I, I come from a world myself where, uh, where you know, um, this is what you are. You're you're a conservative or you're a, a liberal. Cool, whatever, right? <laughs> now it's like, now it's like you're my mortal enemy. <laughs> yes. But I think that that's uh, that's the way politics has gone. They have, yeah. uh, you know, the political um, sides have drawn those lines in the sand where it it's no longer, you know, it's no longer about well, we have better foreign policy ideas and we have better, you know, ideas for for social welfare. And now it's it's I, I don't know. But anyway, let's not get into politics. No, it's just pretty not. awful. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that was the. <laughs> I think that was the point. Like, oh, this is horrible, dreadful stuff. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, I, I had a fantastic time talking to you, 
And uh, the next time you come out with another collection of short stories or a novel, maybe we can have you on again. That would be great. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Robert Block's Psycho Sanitarium by Chat Williamson. Chat Williamson has really established himself with a sequel to Robert Block's Psycho with his truly amazing book. Placing the narrative between Block's Psycho and Psycho 2, Williamson has done an excellent job in creating and fulfilling a perfect bridge between the original and Block's lackluster sequel. It is important to note that this is a sequel to the novel and not the Hitchcock film, though both film and novel are closely linked. There are slight differences, such as Norman being a heavyweight, middle-aged man in the novel, against the Perkins characterization that is famously remembered. Block's Psycho was the dawning of the serial killer novel with its late 50s sensibilities and plot building. It captured the imagination with its tone and execution, and at the time, was a truly shocking exploitation novel with its use of interior psychology. After failed attempts to write a film sequel, Block decided to take matters into his own hands and wrote two sequels, Psycho 2 and Psycho House with various results. Block's Psycho 2 is set a couple of decades after the events of Psycho. Although a bestseller in its own right, it had no reflection on the film of the same name. Williamson's story is set between Block's first two books in the series, fitting very comfortably with his vivid characterizations, wonderful pacing, and fantastic characterizations of Norman as he tries to control Mother and deal with his guilt over the murder of the motel in the originals. The story is driven forward by the psychological treatment of Norman using various techniques in the psychiatry world, from drug use, ECT treatment, and psychotherapy, and it's very interesting how the world was changing in terms of these techniques. The 60s made incredible strides in psychiatry during the time, and Williamson has shown how the old ways were being put aside towards the new ways of treatment that were being developed during this time. While the murders happen, the story unfolds to a whodunit which is handled masterly as the mystery unfolds. This is where Williamson exceeds in all his novels. He is able to take multifaceted plot strands and knit them together to provide a kaleidoscope of textures, rich characterizations, extremely intrinsic plot devices, and motivation to spin a fascinating story. Williamson has actually surpassed Block in writing style, and he has ingeniously been able to write a superior sequel and perfect bridge between Block's work. His writing of psych of Bates is sympathetic, thought-provoking, and at times frightening, when Norman is threatened or Mother comes to the fore. Norman is one of the true horror greats, and Williamson has lovingly and trustfully and truthfully written him as a three-dimensional, multifaceted individual, which at times is failed in the source material. Williamson is giving him fantastic weight. The characters surrounding Norman in the sanitarium are well done, and the surprise addition of the long-lost relative creates an interesting opening and gives Norman a bright light in his drab existence. The supporting characters are at times worse than the inmates, and that they watch over which gives a nurse ratchet feel to the proceedings as the plot awakens itself to the reader. This is really a superior book to his sequels, in every way, and is an ode to Block and to Norman that could have easily fallen flat if put into the wrong hands. 
masterfully crafted, lovingly put together, an incredibly piece of fiction that demands to be read and cherished. Williamson is a true master, and if you love well-constructed stories with believable plot twists, you can never go wrong with him as he is truly top of his craft. Robert Bloch's Psycho Sanitarium by Chet Williamson is one of the most accomplished sequels ever written, and so far this is one of the best psychological thrillers slash horrors of the year. This is a truly recommended book, and if you are a fan of Psycho, either the book or film, you cannot go wrong. This is a must-read. Hey, buddy. Are you coming home? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soon. Okay. It's terrorists, right? It's got to be terrorists. Don't use your cell phone. We're gonna survive because people are gonna die. You okay? They act for the good of the group as a whole. They may be the next stage in human evolution. What's happening now is more than temporary anarchy. It's the start of a war. I wanna wipe them out. It's a suicide mission. You're gonna die. I wanna see my son. Sarah. You okay? Do not withhold your mercy from us, O Lord. For troubles without number surround us. May your love and your truth protect us. For here lies the dead. Dust of the earth. Conquers evil. I believe that. Are you coming home? Are you coming home? I just want you to come home. Johnny's voice. No, it's not. No, that is not your son. I just want you to come Clay. home. Clay, no! I uh, I read Cell by Stephen King when it first came out, and uh, <clears throat> I have to admit it's uh, I I wasn't a big fan of it, but I didn't hate it. I I, I enjoyed it for what it was, and honestly, f- to me, it was uh, it was Stephen King's uh, it was Stephen King's version of George Romero zombie. Uh, <laughs> Uh, zombie movies, and uh, it was just, like I said, his version. His zombies had uh, a, a different reason for becoming zombies. If, well, I'm not going to get into the argument whether or not they're zombies. <laughs> they're zombies. And, uh, but, uh, so yeah, like like I just said, this is his version of that, and uh, I, there's one thing I really liked about it, is that these zombies, they don't, uh, they don't eat your flesh, they just attack you. And uh, so it's sort of like 28 Days Later. 
So maybe there's a bit of that in there too. But, uh, you know, the book itself was, it was good, fun read. And I think that's all it was meant to be. There isn't anything special about it. A lot of people attacked the book saying it sucked. And, uh, I don't see how or why, honestly, I, I, they're missing the point. Uh, recently, the movie was adapted into uh, a movie. Uh, the movie being uh, directed by Todd Williams. Now he's uh, he's not new to adapting films. He adapted the uh, John Irving novel. Uh, well, the uh, oh, what is it called? Uh, the the movie is The Door on the Floor. Um, let me see here if I can't find the name of the novel is I've read it like three or four times it's really stupid that I can't remember the name of the book oh well it's a John Irving book check it you should check that out because John Irving rules anyway uh he did a pretty good job doing that but honestly I don't think Todd William uh Todd Williams really knows the horror genre very well and it's not just because he did door in the floor uh, if you look through his uh, uh, his career, well, he did do Paranormal Activity too, but uh, I don't know if there's all that much horror in there. Uh, Paranormal Activity Part 2 is pretty scary, so I don't know if he, yeah, he directed that too, so I don't know, honestly, I don't know what went wrong with this, uh, uh, this adaptation, except for uh, a few certain things. Um... Now, if you're unfamiliar with what the story is about, it is a, uh, um, it's about, uh, uh, a mysterious phone cell signal that causes, uh, the, the zombie apocalypse, so to speak, and, uh, an artist is determined to reunite with his young son in New England, so right there you already have sort of a... A plot cliche, uh, sort of War of the Worlds type thing, but that's okay. Um, you know, Stephen King brought his own thing to it, made it his own, and this movie tried to do that as well. Uh, the one thing I really liked about the book was the opening scene, where uh, the main character, um, I guess that would be Clay, Clay Riddell, played by John Cusack in the movie. He's, uh, he's ordering or he's waiting in line to order himself a, a, a sausage, a New York sausage, I believe, <laughs> excuse me, from a street vendor, when uh, the signal hits and everyone's cell phone rings at the same time and they all answer it and things just, they turn to shit real quick. And Stephen King is a master at building scenes like that. The uh, the intensity of, of things that happen and the 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 progression is just perfect <clears throat> excuse me and uh that is really missing in in the in the movie adaptation first of all they don't even have the phones ringing uh john kuzak or clay riddell he's uh he's walking through the airport they changed that scene from from new york street to the airport uh, so he's walking through the airport and uh, he's trying to find a place to plug in his cell phone because it's dying and he wants to talk to his uh, to his wife and uh, his son. 
because he's on his way to go visit them and uh, he can't find anywhere because all the uh, <laughs> all the plugins are taken by other people charging their cell phones so right there you already have like a, a commentary on on how cell phones have taken over uh, the world and the whole you know apocalypse that comes after it you could argue is is uh, <laughs> is very symbolic for <laughs> uh, for how people who are on their cell phones while they're walking down the street for example uh, are pretty much zombies I mean we all do it so uh, yeah you know good commentary I guess on that but I don't know I, I think I think it kind of actually kind of fails because because of how silly this movie is. Uh, it, it, first of all, the movie takes itself too seriously, I think. And that's part of the problem. Because once that signal hits, and like I said, there is no indication that the signal hits, except for people start screaming and going crazy. They should have at least had the, the, the phone ringing and everyone answering at the same time. That was a big beef for me because it was such a pivotal moment in in the book. And it just makes sense. I don't care if people are listening to their headphones or playing video games with their headphones or whatever. They should be uh, answering uh, the call. But, you know, at the same time, I think uh, the director, Todd Williams, did a good job at uh, panning through uh, the people uh, and building his own uh, scene of chaos. Because there is a progression there as well. It's just not as well done as Stephen King's and it's probably the better part of the movie as well um, I don't want to go too far into the plot in case you haven't read the book or seen the movie but I uh, I would recommend that you just read the book honestly um, uh, the one reason for this is I'm going to discuss the zombies the zombies are just silly they're not scary at all um, there's in the airport scene, this happens within the first five minutes, so it's not really a spoiler. Uh, I guess the signal drives people crazy. It makes them um, violent and uh, and aggressive. But there's this one woman who who's turned over, and she slams herself up against the wall in front of uh, Clay Riddell. And she like starts banging her head off the wall until it's all bloody. And she turns around, she's missing teeth now because of uh, of her little foray with the wall. <laughs> and she starts rubbing the, the blood in on her face and on her hands. And she's like doing this weird laugh. And then she walks by a very stunned Clay Riddell. And it just, it's like, what? <laughs> That's not scary. That's fucking ridiculous. Um, the movie really doesn't improve on that as, uh, as Clay Riddell starts looking for or going to where his son is supposed to be uh they they of course come across people other survivors and uh and uh you know there's a there's a few there's another part that really pissed <laughs> pissed me off it's just because uh, the reason why it angers me is because it, it's not scary, but yet the movie is trying so hard to make it scary. Um, and that's the football field with all the uh, with all the zombies while, while they sleep. They sleep at night, or is it during the day? I can't remember. Um, but they all have like music coming out of their mouths, and I'm pretty sure this happened in the book as well. But uh, in the book, it was believable. In in the movie, it, it just looks preposterous. 
Um, and they all have their cell phones, of course, and they're all glowing. And uh, there's a cool scene later on in the film, and this is a bit of a spoiler, so you might want to just skip ahead if you don't want to hear this part. But it's, it's a really <laughs> good part of the film that I like, where they decide to... Uh, uh, they decide to kill all those uh, phoners, as they call them. That's another nitpick I have. Why and why do these people have to? Why don't? Why can't they just call them zombies? I mean, phoners is oh, that's it's god awful. It's terrible. Come on, man, just call them zombies. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of The Walking Dead here, too. It just annoys me that they call them walkers or biters. Just call them zombies. It's, you know, if a zombie apocalypse ever did happen, we'd just call them zombies. It sounds really stupid to call them anything but zombies or the undead. All right, rant over. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, so, yeah, they decide to uh, to kill all the zombies in the, uh, in the, in the football field. And uh, so they, to do this, they take this big watering truck. Uh, I guess it waters uh, fields, farm fields or something. They fill it with gasoline instead. And, uh, and they have to drive down the middle of the, uh, of the field. And as they, uh, John Cusack is driving. And as he pulls on into the bodies, there's like all this crunching and... <laughs> nastiness happening and the look on John Cusack's face or, or I guess Clay Riddell's face is just priceless um, and that's another thing that bothered me about the film uh, it's not just the uh, the direction uh, well it, it's a big part the direction is a big part because uh, because you have this talent you have John Cusack Samuel L. Jackson and Isabel Furman and you don't know her she was from uh the orphanage, uh, and she's a you know she's a new upcoming actress, and uh, I I just hope this movie didn't ruin any potential career she might have had. Uh, she did all the actors in this movie did what they could. You could see them trying to pull this off, and it just it just falls flat in his face, um, and you know to use. John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson and to sort of miss the target so that the movie itself is not only a little flat but ridiculous then you've really lost a big part of uh, what this movie could have been I think they should have changed up the zombies just a little bit um, when they open up their mouths and uh <laughs> fax machine sounds start coming out of it it's just you shake your head and you just want to turn the movie off and uh so <clears throat> okay i'm gonna stop ranting now i think you get the point i don't think this is a very good adaptation at all of uh of the cell and uh i don't know what happened maybe it was just Maybe it was one of those hindsights twenty twenty type thing uh you know while they were making it they thought it looked cool but in post-production it just it just did not <laughs> come out to be what they thought it was i don't know what happened but it's it's not good it's not good at all if i was to give it one out of five dweller heads one being bad five being excellent i would give it i'll give it a two
All right, so that is the uh, the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it as much as uh, as I enjoyed creating it. Um, if you want to get in contact with uh, with the show, you can do so easily. Just go on to Facebook, and uh, you can you can find either Michael or me on there. If you're going to look for me on Facebook, better look up Dark Fiction seventy four. There's just too many Jason Whites, and if you look up Jason Whites, you're going to get lost. <laughs> uh, but you can find uh, you can find the podcast on on Facebook as well. Go to www.facebook.com/slash Where Darkness Dwells and uh, and like the page. Um, there's a group too where uh, there's been some uh, conversation lately, so go check that out as well. You can email the show at uh, uh, darknessdwells74 at gmail.com. There's a, there's a Twitter as well, and that is, uh, or the handle for that is at darkdweller74. Because somebody took Darkness Dwells. Idiot. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can also visit us on our website, which is wheredarknessdwells.com. So thanks again for listening. Uh, we have, uh, we have uh, a lot of guests and a lot of uh, plans for, for integrating movies back into the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> because this this podcast is supposed to be about movies, horror movies, and horror literature, and tying them together. And uh, so we have some ideas about that, and uh, so stay tuned. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you again next week. Good night, and, and sweet, sweet dreams. dreams.